Good morning, everyone. My name is Ricky. I'm honored to be the lead pastor here at Fort Caroline. If today's your first week with us, we are so glad that you're spending some time today with us, and we hope this will be an encouragement to you. In fact, at the end of our service, I'll be at the back, and I would love to personally meet you and thank you for being with us. And as you can see, we're in a series called As It Is in Heaven. And in this series, we're taking a look at what Jesus and the Bible says about heaven. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, we hope that today you'll be encouraged as you learn more about what we believe about heaven. You see, if Jesus could predict his own death, burial, and resurrection and pull it off like he actually did, then we can put our faith and trust in him and we can believe anything else he says to us. And he has a lot to say to us about heaven as well as the, the Bible. And so today, I want to just answer some questions. Last Sunday, I asked you to submit questions about heaven that you have. And today, we're just going to talk about some of those questions. Now, the first question that I received was, will our pets be in heaven? Will there be animals in heaven? And I can understand why that question came. You know, when we get pets, they become really a special part of our family. And they can become dear to us. And people miss their pets when they pass away. So this person wanted to know, will our pets be in heaven? And the simple answer is, dogs, yes, cats, no. Actually, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, our family has two cats, Fluffy and Oreo, and now we are the proud owners of a brand new Boykin Spaniel puppy named Bandit, and he lives up to his name. If you leave your shoes around, he will steal them, and they'll become his favorite chew toy. Now, this is a good question. Will pets be in heaven the Bible doesn't say anything about our pets. And so I can't be dogmatic about this answer, but we do know there will be animals in heaven. It was the humorist Will Rogers who said, if there are no dogs in heaven, then when I die, I want to go where they went. And so I can understand that. In her excellent book about heaven, Joni Erickson Tada, who was paralyzed as a young teenager after a diving accident, wrote about heaven. And maybe, just maybe, God will allow us to be reunited with our pets. This is what she wrote. If God brings our pets back to life, it wouldn't surprise me. It would be just like him. It would be totally in keeping with his generous character. Exorbitant, excessive, extravagant in grace after grace. Of all the dazzling discoveries and ecstatic pleasures heaven will hold for us, the potential of seeing Scrappy would be pure whimsy, utterly, joyfully, surprisingly superfluous. Heaven is going to be a place that will refract and reflect in as many ways as possible the goodness and joy of our great God who delights in lavishing love on his children. So while I don't think any of us can be absolutely certain, I can promise you this, heaven is going to be perfect. Heaven is going to be joyful. Heaven is going to be blissful. And you can be sure that God is going to make it wonderful. Now, a second question that came was, will there only be harp music in heaven? Friend, that's, that's hell. That's not heaven. <laughs> if there's only harp music in heaven, uh, that's going to be pretty boring. But actually, I believe heaven is going to be filled with all kinds of music and musical instruments. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 150. And in that psalm, the Jewish people would encourage each other, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. 
And then it starts listing some of the musical instruments that are to be used in praising God. The harp is one. The lute is the other. Um, tambourines. Must be some charismatics in heaven. The tambourine is another. Um, uh, wind instruments. Stringed instruments. And it says, let, let God be praised on cymbals. And in case people don't get that God likes loud music, it says even crashing cymbals. We practice that in every contemporary service here at our church. And so we believe in, in worshiping God with all of our heart, with all of our gusto. And I believe heaven is going to be filled with all kinds of musical instruments and all kinds of music as people express their praise, as people express the talents that God gave them to play instruments. It's going to be awesome. In fact, I think the only kind of music we want have in heaven is blues. I love the blues, but we won't be singing the blues in heaven. We're going to be just praising God in heaven. Uh, third question, will we be married in heaven? Now, this one we can answer emphatically, and that is no. Jesus said in Luke chapter 20, verse 35, that uh, in the age of the resurrection in heaven, there will neither, they will neither marry or be given in marriage. So, no, we won't be married as a couple in heaven, but we will know each other, and we will know the relationships that we had on earth. Now, whenever I said no, some of you got very sad. You're going, oh, man, I mean, I love my wife, I love my husband, or my, my spouse has gone on, and I, I want to be... Some of you got very happy. I can't wait for heaven. Uh, so we'll do another series for you on marriage somewhere down the road. Um, and I don't know all the reasons why that is going to be the case. I think for one reason is when we get to heaven, our relationships are going to be on a different, higher, holier level than they are down here. That our faith in Jesus makes us one. We become the family of God. The scriptures often call us brothers and sisters. Uh, and we know we have a heavenly father. So our relationships are just going to be on a higher, awesome plane that you will not miss something down here that you experienced in this life. But you know, the Bible also speaks of Jesus in that day when we're gathered together in heaven as being the groom and the church, all Christians of all the ages comprising the bride of Christ. In fact, the, new, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that one day we will gather with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb of God. That there will be a union between us and him Nothing will ever separate us from him ever again. We will be with him, he will be with us, and we will be his bride as the church. And that doesn't mean a bride in some romantic sense. I think it is just the scripture's way of speaking of the union and the unity that we will enjoy with Christ in heaven. And every bit of love and praise and adoration and devotion and ecstasy that we want to express is going to be directed to the one who gave his life for us on the cross. And when we get to heaven, we're going to want to praise him and worship him because we will know better than ever that there's only one reason I'm here and it's because of him. Only one reason I'm free from sin, sickness, and sorrow is because of him. And I'm a part of the family of God. Amen. It's going to be awesome. Uh, fourth question that was posed, will heaven be boring? <laughs> I think that's a big misconception about heaven. That Oh, man, that just sounds boring. I don't want to sit on a cloud and pluck a harp. 
You remember the Far Side cartoons? I used to love those when I was younger. And there's a coffee cup that has a picture of a, of a guy on a coffee cup. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip. Let's, let me give you something else. Because Carla's going, where are you in this? In, in a Starbucks cup, there was a, a series of Starbucks cups called The Way I See It. And it, it was just a way that Starbucks would promote what people could read from famous people or quotes or poems. But on one of their Starbucks cups, number 230, they, they put a quote from Joel Stein, who was a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. He wrote, heaven is totally overrated. Seems boring. Clouds, listening to people play the harp. It should be somewhere you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century, but heaven has to step it up a bit. They're basically getting by because they only have to be better than hell. And that's what the far side cup is trying to communicate, is your idea of heaven is that, just sitting on a cloud with a white robe and wings on your back, plucking a harp. Yeah, that would be boring, but that's not the New Testament picture of heaven. Heaven is a beautiful place where you will sit, not saying, I wish I'd have brought a magazine, but a place where you will be active, active in serving God, active in praising God. Your joy will be unlimited. You will have all eternity to explore the universe that God has created and to explore the new heaven and the new earth that you and I will inhabit in new bodies that will never be sick or grow old. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. The, the next question, will there be a frequently asked questions bulletin? How will our questions be answered? Will we just know all the answers? I think this person is asking, when I get to heaven, are they going to hand me an FAQ saying, here's everything you need to know about heaven? Or will we just know what we need to know about heaven? And I get that question too. I understand it because I get nervous when I go somewhere new and I'm not sure what door do I go in, where do I sit, am I in the right room, am I going to be too early, too late? And so maybe thinking about heaven, you start getting fearful. <gasps> Never been there, I don't know what to do. Well, one thing that God does to answer a lot of our questions and get us ready for heaven is he gave us this book we call the Bible, which is really 66 books put together where God reveals him, his heart, his plan where we came from, where we're headed, how to know that heaven is our home. So I can tell you, one of the best things you can do for, to prepare for heaven is to get to know God and his word more and more every day. But I think when we get to heaven, we're going to fully understand what we need to fully understand. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. He, he was talking about, writing about our knowledge of God and the ways of God and and the work of God in our lives. And he says, for now, talking about in this life, for now we see in a mirror dimly. So Paul is saying, trying to understand what God's up to is almost like looking in a dim mirror. D-I-M, a dim mirror. I want to make sure I made that clear. In Paul's day, mirrors weren't made of glass like we use. Mirrors in that day were uh, highly polished metal, typically bronze. So even the best mirror, you could see your reflection, but you couldn't see clearly. It wasn't like a mirror we have today. And so Paul has that bronze polished mirror in mind. And he says, kind of understanding God is like looking in this mirror. I can't really see everything I need to see. I, I get the broad outline, but I don't understand or perceive all the details. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know, I understand in part, but then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. He says when we get to be with God, God not only fully knows us, but we're going to fully know everything God wants us to know. It's going to be awesome. You're not going to be scratching your head in heaven. I don't know about this. I don't understand this. I'm confused. I'm turned around. I'm lost. You're going to have all the knowledge God wants you to know. And I think we'll spend eternity trying to plumb the depths of our infinite God. That we will spend eternity learning more and more. Now, there's a couple of other questions that came in that I kind of lumped together. Uh, One was, what does the Bible say about being able to see loved ones in heaven that have passed away before us? I think this person is asking the question, I've got a loved one who went to be with Jesus. They're now in heaven. Now, what happens when I get there? Will I get to see them? And maybe a, a question, will I know them? Will they know me? So what does the Bible say about being able to see loved ones in heaven that have passed away before us? Well, here's a good answer that is unequivocal. Yes, you will get to see your loved ones who have gone on before you. You will know them and they will know you. There will be no name tags in heaven. I don't care if they passed away recently or if they've been gone for years. You will know them. They will know you. In fact, I think one of the joys of heaven is that grand reunion that we will have together with people who have gone on before us who are going to welcome us home. You say, well, how do you know we're going to recognize them? One of the primary evidences for knowing that we will recognize people in heaven is we're not going to be dumber in heaven than we are down here. So if you know people down here, you're going to know them up there. You're going to know them even better up there. But remember when Jesus rose from the dead? His disciples knew him even though he was now in a glorified body. He was in a physical body, but he was alive from the dead. And he would never again suffer. He would never again feel pain. He would never again die. And so the disciples knew him. And we're going to know each other when we get to heaven. I've heard my dad talk about his mother who passed away when he was only a teenager. I never knew my grandmother, his mom. But I've heard him talk about how she was one of the most godly people he had ever met in his life. He said, Ricky, she could not read or write her own name. She could just make an X for her name. He said, but she had gone to church so much in her life that she had memorized huge portions of Scripture just by listening to people read the Bible to her, and she would memorize it, and she could quote it. And I know one of these days when I get to heaven, one of the people I will know and who will know me is Evelyn Powell. My grandmother that I never met down here. And I think about all the people I have mourned as they've gone on to heaven. My family, my friends, and this church. And I can't wait to see them again one day. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul who said, I've got a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better than being down here, but I've got work to do with you. And I think one of the reasons it's going to be sweet in heaven is we get to reunite with them. Now, I don't know if this is on the screen, but someone also asked, and I think it kind of goes together. In heaven, we will always be happy. Yes, that's true. So so can we not see our family down on earth? So now the picture is, I'm in heaven. Everything is awesome. But if I see people down on earth, 
and they're hurting or they're doing wrong, won't that make me unhappy? So do we forget about all the bad things that happen? Do we forget it all? That was the question that came in. And so I think the question here is, if I'm in heaven, can I see people down on earth? And if I see the bad happening to them or the bad they've done, will that take away my joy? Well, I don't think God would allow us in heaven to see anything that's going to make heaven less heaven. That's going to take the joy and the bliss of heaven. Revelation chapter 21, in heaven there's going to be no more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death. God will wipe away all tears, no matter what put those tears in our eyes, he's going to wipe away all tears from our eyes. And I think where people get this idea that people in heaven can see us down here is perhaps from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, 3, 4 where the writer of Hebrews has just talked about the Old Testament saints of God who lived their lives. Their, their lives are often recorded in the Old Testament. And then they died. And so he pictures them having died, going on up into heaven. And it's as if they're filling the grandstands of a great stadium. Those of us who are still alive are down here, and we're in the stadium on a race course. I'm in my lane, running my race, living my life. You're in your lane, running your race, living your life. And surrounding us are all the people who have died and gone to heaven. And so Hebrews chapter 12 says, Wherefore, seeing that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the people who have died and gone to heaven, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So I've heard some preachers say, those people see us on earth, and therefore we need to watch how we live. I don't think that's the best interpretation. I get it. I'm not going to argue with people about it. But I don't think that's really what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. You know, the New Testament was not written in English. It was written primarily in Greek. And the word for witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, is the word marturon, where we get our word martyr from. The word means one who testifies. It's a witness in saying something. It's not so much that these witnesses are seeing something, it's that they're saying something to us as we run our race, as we live our lives. By their own example of how they lived and went to heaven, they're giving us an example that living by faith is the only way to live. And that there is a way up and out when you trust God by faith. So I don't think they see us. I think they're saying something to us. They're saying we lived by faith and there's a way up and out by faith. Just trusting God. Trusting God in the good days. Trusting God in the bad days. Trusting God when everything is great. Trusting God when your life is on the line because you can't go wrong living by faith in God. That's what they're saying to us. That's what they're testifying to us through their godly example. In fact, it's one of the reasons we give eulogies at funerals is we want to remind ourselves of the example that the deceased has left us, and we want to remind ourselves of the lessons we ought to take from this person's life. That's what the writer of Hebrews was doing as well. But I don't think, whether they see you or not, that anything that they see is going to make heaven any less heavenly. Another question came in, is heaven ready for us now? Is heaven ready for us now? If we are believers and die today, do we go to heaven immediately? And that's another great question. And the answer is yes. Heaven is ready for us now. You remember when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary? He finished by saying, it is finished. 
What he meant was the work that the Father had sent him to do to die for the sins of the world was finished. And when he had said this, the Bible says Jesus bowed his head and he dismissed his spirit. He died. It was finished. And on the third day, he rose from the dead to vindicate that he is the Son of God and that he died for our sins and that he has the power to forgive us because he came out of that grave alive. And there's nothing to add to that. Now, I think where we sometimes question, does it, is heaven ready, is because we hear Jesus saying in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And we wonder, what does he mean? I'm going to prepare a place for you. It means that when he left them to die, that his death on the cross was the way he was preparing the place for us to get to heaven. That's why he said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven except through me. Jesus prepared the way for you to go to heaven when he died in your place on the cross and when he rose from the dead. And heaven is ready today if you're a believer. The question is, if you're not a believer, you need to get ready. Because heaven is not your home. You need to get ready by trusting Jesus Christ who made the way possible for you. So if we're believers and die today, do we go to heaven immediately? Oh yes. Don't you remember in Luke chapter 23 verses 42 and 43? That Jesus is crucified between two criminals. At the beginning, those two criminals are, even though they're dying like Jesus is dying, they are mocking Jesus and blaspheming him for claiming to be the Son of Man. And then finally, something changes in one of the criminals' hearts where he realizes, what are we doing? He says to the other thief on the other cross, why are we doing this seeing that we're under the same judgment this man is? And then in Luke 23, 42, he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew enough about Jesus that Jesus is a king and has a kingdom that's coming to him. And he wanted Jesus just to remember him in that day. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. No soul sleep. No purgatory, no limbo. The moment you die, having put your faith in Jesus, you are with him. Your eyes close here, they open there, and you are with him forever. And he says, you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise literally means a garden. It was a word that the Jewish people and the Greeks had taken from the Babylonians. It's a Persian word. It means a garden. And in the Bible, paradise is spoken of as the garden of God. And it's spoken of the dwelling place of God. And it's spoken of the eternal home of God's people. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a place of rest. It's going to be a place of refreshment. It's going to be a place of rejoicing. But Paul also said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Consciously aware that you are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Isn't that awesome to know that, yes, heaven is ready for all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And one day we will get to be with him. Another question came in, and that was, how will the new heaven and new earth look? Will it look like the Garden of Eden? It's a great question, too. Yes, it will, but we're going to talk about that next Sunday. And why do we even need a new heaven and a new earth? So let's talk about that next week. Another question came in, what happened to people in the days before Christ died on the cross for our sins? Was there a heaven and hell and no way to get to heaven if you sinned? Well, in the Old Testament, we know that when people who had put their faith in God died, they went to a place that the Bible calls Sheol uh, in the Old Testament, S-H-E-O-L, and it meant the grave, it meant the abode of the dead. And you read about Sheol in the Old Testament as a place for believers, but you also read in the Old Testament that unbelievers also went to a place called Sheol, same place, two different compartments. Jesus kind of gave us a glimpse into that in Luke chapter 16 when he talked about the rich man who did not believe in God, who lived a wicked life and who died, and he went to hell. The beggar Lazarus, who had nothing, not even anyone to care for his, his sick body, only dogs there to lick his wounds, when he died, the angels carried him into the bosom of Abraham. He got to go to paradise. Sheol. So there are many who say there was two compartments to the place of death, the grave in the Old Testament, one for the righteous and one for the wicked. But when Jesus ascended back to the Father, he took those out of Sheol into paradise. And now when believers die, they go straight to paradise. But there was also a hell. That's where people in the Old Testament and people even today who die without Christ spend eternity separated from God. Now, I want to clarify, though, that there are not two plans of salvation. Sometimes people think the Old Testament people were saved by keeping the law. They kept the Ten Commandments and did the sacrifices. Then they were right with God. And that's how they got saved. But we don't have to keep the law. We just trust in Jesus. No. That's not how they got saved either. In fact, none of them kept the law perfectly. And the Bible says if you break one commandment, you're as guilty of breaking them all. You're a sinner. The law was just given to the Old Testament Jews to show them how desperate we need God. You know how people were saved in the Old Testament, just like we are in the New? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith. So it's God's unmerited love that makes it even possible for you to be forgiven of your sin. And how do you claim this great gift of God's forgiveness through your faith? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself is not of works, lest anyone should boast. This opportunity to put your faith in God is a gift from God. Now, in the Old Testament, they looked forward to God's promise, fulfillment, that he would send a Savior, that he would send the Messiah. And they put their faith in God. And all of those Old Testament sacrifices were to symbolize their faith in God that one day God's going to send a Savior. Every time they sacrificed a lamb and sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, it was a symbol that... This covers our sin, but we're trusting God to send a Savior who will cleanse our sin and forgive us once and for all. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming to him at the River Jordan, declared for every Jew there to hear, look, as he pointed to Jesus, 
Behold, the Lamb of God. Not a Lamb, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Savior that the whole Old Testament prophesied about, that all the Old Testament believers were looking forward to coming one day. And when they had sincere faith that God would keep his promise, they were saved. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 12 that God called Abram to be the father of the Jewish people, the, the, the one whom God says, you have no children, but through your descendants, I'll give you, the whole earth will be blessed. It was God's way of saying, I'm going to choose you, and through your lineage, I'm going to send the Savior, Jesus. And so all the, and, and the Bible says, Abram believed, and it was accounted to him by God for righteousness. He wasn't saved by what he did. He was saved by faith in God. What he did was just evidence that he did have faith in God. So they looked forward to the coming of the Savior. We are saved by grace through faith, looking back to the Savior who came. We look back on that finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And whoever you are, put your faith in God in his finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And heaven can be yours. Isn't that good news? Amen. It's not religion that's going to save you. It's a relationship with Jesus, God's son, who can save you. Now, this is not on the screens. I don't believe unless they added it. But someone texted me last night and said, I have a question. Mom has a question. And that is, do we have guardian angels? That's a good question. I wasn't expecting that question. But then when it came through, I'm thinking, ah, I should have expected that question. Do we have guardian angels? Now, if some of you have guardian angels, you're keeping him mighty busy. I, I know that. Watching over you. I don't know if we can be dogmatic that every individual is assigned an angel to watch over you. But here's what we do know from the Bible. We know that angels are created beings. They're not humans. And humans don't become angels when they die. When you die, you don't become an angel. Angels are angels. People are people. And the Bible says angels are the created servants of God. And they serve God and they worship God. And they are often the messengers of God. Many times in the Old Testament, angels appear to people, always in masculine form, always scare people silly when they show up, when people realize it's an angel. Uh, never as a chubby little baby with halo and wings. That's not the New Testament or the Old Testament picture of angels. They're mighty servants of God. They're mighty warriors of God. They can even take on the appearance of humans, even though they are angels. But most often, angels are unseen by the vast majority of humanity. An angel, angelos, means messenger. Have you ever heard us use the word evangelism? You ever heard that word, evangelism? Uh, did you know that's a composite word we get out of the Greek language? E-U means good. So a euphemism is a good way of talking about something that's not so good. It's what we call death. Oh, they passed away. You know, we're trying to make something hard and difficult a little easier by using euphemisms for it. Or a eulogy is a good, E-U, and then logos, word. A eulogy is just a good word. Well, evangelism is from the Greek euangelion. E-U, good, angelion, message. Evangelism is just telling the good message. Now you learn some Greek today. I'm not even going to charge you guys for that. I typically charge for my Greek lessons. 
but I'm going to let you off. So we know that angels are messengers of God. They're servants of God. And we know, according to the scriptures, that they often minister to believers. Psalm 34, verse 7. Psalm 94, verse 11. Acts chapter 5, verse 19. Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 11. You see angels ministering to the people of God. Even to Jesus, after his temptation in the wilderness and in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that angels rejoice when a sinner repents and gets saved. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. We know that angels are watching us as we live our lives as Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. We know angels are present within the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10. And according to Jesus in Luke 16, verse 22... Angels carry believers into the arms of God, into paradise, or for the Jews in that day, into Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom. So while I can't say you have a particular angel just for you, I can say God uses his angels to watch over his children. And the Bible says sometimes we've entertained strangers and we didn't realize it. It was actually an angel. Now, you don't pray to angels. You don't go around looking for them. You certainly don't worship angels. But I believe angels are real. That's why sometimes when I visit people in hospitals, I'll pray, Lord, would you just put your ministering angels around this bed and protect this person during this time from spiritual warfare because the enemy wants to attack them while they're down. And you know, I just trust God. If it's if his, his will to send angels to comfort, to minister, to protect, to watch over, then he will certainly do that. So much more I wanted to talk about today, but I want to close with this passage of Scripture. Can we just close with one more passage? You may want to open your Bible. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. All of that that I just gave you was meant to be like a few minutes of an introduction to a sermon, but I didn't have enough time. There's too much there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Thessalonica who believed Jesus was coming back one day because he didn't just come the first time. He said he'd come a second time came the first time for sin and salvation. He's coming back the second time to take us home with him and to usher in his kingdom. And some of the people in the city of Thessalonica were concerned that their believing brothers and sisters or family members who had died had missed out on something. Well, if Jesus comes back and they've already died, they missed out on it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. They're going to have front row seats when Jesus comes back. So he puts it this way. And now, dear brothers and sisters... We do not, we, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. By the way, it doesn't say don't grieve. When you lose, lose a loved one, grief is natural. It's okay to be sorrowful. But even in the midst of your sorrow as a child of God, you have faith that you will see your loved one again. It says, so I don't want you to grieve like people who have no hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again. Anybody here besides me believe Jesus died and was raised again to life? That's what we just celebrated right last Sunday, right? So if you believe that, you can believe this. We also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Remember, that's where they are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present where? With the Lord. 
So when the Lord comes back, he's bringing them back with him. He's bringing the souls of our departed loved ones with him. And then he says in verse 15, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. You say, wait a minute, I thought they were coming back with Jesus. Now he's talking about them rising from their graves. Yes, remember, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your soul is with the Lord. Your body is still down here, and you're separated from your body. But when Jesus comes back, he's bringing the souls of our departed loved ones with him. They have front row seats to the second coming of Jesus. And in the air, he's going to resurrect their bodies, reunite their bodies with their soul. Now they have brand new bodies. Brand new bodies. And according to Revelation 21, no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more death. That's the kind of body we're going to get. Isn't that awesome to think about that? I'm going to be just as good looking, just more hair. And I, and I think, hopefully, two inches taller. I don't know. My uncle, my grandfather, I should say, is like 6'4", head full of hair, Hollywood looks. I mean, God's got a sense of humor. Thank you, Lord. So the Lord will come back from heaven with a commanded shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Verse 17, what about us? Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Paul says what's going to happen when Christ comes back, he brings the souls of our departed loved ones back with him. He raises their bodies to glorified bodies. They're reunited in a new body. And then we are next in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, if we're still alive we don't have to die. We get to bypass the undertaker. We just get to go straight with the upper taker. And we get brand new bodies that are transformed according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because he says this mortal has to put on immortality. This corruptible body has to put on incorruption. Go watch Avengers all day long. I'm going to tell you this. One of these days when Jesus comes back, we're going to have glorified bodies like him that will never be suffering with sickness, never suffer with pain or heartache or death or disease. We're going to be supermen and superwomen because we're going to be like Jesus in bodies that have been perfected. And he says in verse 18, so encourage each other with these words. That ought to encourage you. Your loved ones are okay. They're better than okay. You're going to see them again one day. In the meantime, keep living for Jesus and looking forward to that grand reunion that could come at any moment. Any moment. Now, we don't know when Jesus could come back. It could be at any time. It could be today. What a great moment that's going to be. And we ought to be encouraged with those words. And some of you need that encouragement. I've done a terrible job trying to explain to you heaven. But you need to know it is more awesome than any preacher could ever tell you. And it's all yours for the asking when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. It's that simple. And dear friend, I hope you are encouraged as a follower of Jesus. 
Sometimes people get discouraged and say, I just want to give up on life. And I just want to get out of here and I may take my own life. Jesus said in John chapter 10, the thief, the devil comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly. So if you think that you ought to just give up on this life, that is not from God. That is from the devil. God's voice tells you, your loved ones are with me. And I am with you. And you need to live your life by faith, trusting me, even when you don't understand it, even when it's not easy, even when you feel tired and ready to give up. You keep trusting me by faith because I'm not finished yet. You just wait until you see what I'm doing. Maybe somebody like Trey today needs to come to faith in Jesus for the first time in your life. Maybe today you need to believe in Christ. Put your trust and confidence in him once and for all. I wish I could do it for you. I would do it for every person in the world if I could believe in Jesus for you. But it's an individual choice because God's not going to force you into heaven. If you don't want God now, he's not going to make you want him next time. But if you want him, today's the day to tell him. So we're going to close in prayer, and then I'm going to let you go. And after this prayer, if you've prayed to receive Jesus, I want you to let me know. I'm going to be at the back door. Some of our church members will be there to answer your questions. If you just need somebody to pray with you or just talk to you, or if you just want to come by and say, today I trusted Jesus as my Savior. We will rejoice with you, and we'll be so happy. Whatever decision you need to make, come to the next step area, and let us help you take that next step in your journey with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time today. Just to talk, just to glimpse a little bit of heaven as you've revealed it in Scripture. To answer some questions. I know some of it we've speculated because we don't have clear answers, but what we do know is more glorious than we could ever tell. Help us to hang on to what we know and not be troubled by what we don't know. Father, this we know. You loved us so much that you sent Jesus to make it way to make the way for us to come to you in heaven. He is the way, the truth, the life. Can't get to heaven except through him. And God, there could be somebody in this room who for the first time in their life wants to pray and trust Jesus once and for all to forgive them of their sin and to claim that gift of eternal life. Jesus promised whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. So friend, with your head bowed, your eyes closed, maybe today silently you'll say to God, Dear God, I admit to you I'm a sinner. I know I've done wrong. And I know because you're perfect and righteous, you have to punish sin. But I believe you sent Jesus out of love to take my place, to take my punishment. That when he died on the cross, he was doing it for me. And I believe he rose from the dead and he promised me if I would simply believe, trust in him, I would not perish in my sin. But instead, by believing in him, I would have everlasting life. Life now with you and life forever with you. So today I confess my sin and I confess my faith in Jesus and I not only ask him to forgive me, I receive his promised forgiveness by faith today. Now help me to learn more about him so that I can live for him and glorify him in everything I do. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen.